The Republic of Ireland's only big city is a magnet for the Irish people, a centerpiece of the Emerald Isle's history and arts. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're heading for Dublin, where, it turns out, the economic boom nicknamed the Celtic Tiger comes with an appetite. Ireland's new prosperity is having an impact on its cultural landscape, as Polish newspapers now jockey with the Irish ones at the newsstand. Always proud of its rich culture, trendsetting Dublin contributes more per capita to world pop culture than any other city its size. But the important things never change. In the streets of Dublin, the famous Irish pubs are as rollicking as ever, even if a pint of Guinness now costs $7. Joining us today is an inspirational Irish guide, Stephen McPhillamy, who offers us a fresh look at fast-changing Dublin. For all the faults in my life, I am a member of the same tribe as Bono. There is a God. Stay with us for an insider's guide to Dublin on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling to Dublin. Dublin, Dublin's fair city. It just makes you want to sing, even if you're not Irish. I was there with my family recently, and Anne and I have two teenage kids, and we wanted to uh, go to a place where the kids would enjoy it, and we realized the kids don't want to do a joy ride through some scenic, you know, idyllic villages and so on. They wanted the energy of a big city, and we wanted a safe place where we could let them run wild, a place where they could learn a lot of history, and Dublin was perfect. We spent a week there. We were busy every day and every evening, and it was, it was a great place for a family vacation. Dublin is an exciting city, and it's a city that the more you understand it, of course, the more you'll enjoy it, and it's one of the most expensive places in Europe, so you need to know a few budget tips. I've invited uh, with me Stephen McPhillamy, who's a friend of mine and a a guide who leads Americans around Dublin and all of Ireland. Stephen, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now, Ireland has what? Four million people, and how many in Dublin? Uh, Well, the Republic of Ireland has four million, and uh, 1.2 million, or over a million of those, live in Dublin, our capital city. So over a quarter of all the people in the Republic live in the capital city. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't born in Dublin, but I still regard it as my city. I mean, all the Irish people look to Dublin as the capital. We have a rivalry with their Gaelic football team, sure, but Dublin is our city. It's like in America, where Americans have certain opinions on New York or L.A. or Chicago. Uh, but everyone seems to like D.C. and have a respect for it. Right. Uh, here, or in Ireland, it's the same. You know, we have certain opinions in other cities, but Dublin is the only big city that we have, the only... It's true, because capital. it falls off after that quite dramatically. Oh, yeah, Republic. absolutely. Next to that is Cork in the Republic with a quarter of a million. Belfast yeah. is half a million, but still the shade in comparison to the size of Dublin. And Ireland is so small and cozy in a way. You can be a musician, a, a pub musician, a traditional uh, musician, could go to Dublin, be on TV, and everybody could be watching him. And the next day, he's gotten on a bus for two hours, and he's in Ennis and playing in a pub to 50 people. Yeah, there's that nice atmosphere. intimacy. We, yeah, definitely. And and the other thing about Dublin, too, it's like it's where we all go to maybe, say, university or for big concerts. It's where we, you know, go to the airport to get flights. or Not necessarily these days, but it was always the place where we went. It's where we went for the zoo. It's where we went for Christmas shopping or for St. Patrick's Day. But most importantly, it's where the All-Ireland Gaelic football final is every September. So the whole island, north, south, east and west, the attention focuses on Dublin as our city. And when the Pope's in town and he has a mass in Dublin a quarter of the country can actually assemble together for that Mass. That's right, yeah. That was 1979. Unfortunately, the Pope has decided not to come back since. So hopefully we're... The Pope ex- has not been back since 79. Not since 79, oh, which I find is strange, considering that uh, the Church has lost its power since then. I, you know, I, this is just my opinion, but I think if the Pope came back tomorrow, 
church attendance would go up by 10 or 15 or maybe 20%. Yeah. You know, it would have that big impact. Like when he came in 79, Pope John Paul was rock star status. There's a very famous image of the priests out in Maynooth College waving and cheering at him like soccer hooligans. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and literally a million people got together. A million people got together in the Phoenix Park, which is the biggest urban park in the world, a beautiful park in the, the centre of Dublin. That's where our president lives as well. That's uh, historic to have that many people together. I mean, I guess for the Pope, he can do that. But that's just incredible to think of a million Irishmen together at the same time. Of course, uh, a lot of people gathered for St. Patrick when he was uh, preaching. That's right, yeah. We don't have any official attendance figures for that no. meeting, though that was a bit far back. Now, Dublin is a very expensive city these days, and that's partly because of the new affluence, isn't it? Dublin, for a decade, I think, has had this thing called the, the what is it, the Celtic Tiger economy. Yeah, the Celtic Tiger's been around since about 1994. I mean, we've never had it so good, uh, you know, personally and my family and all of us, we've never had so much disposable income. Everyone's got two cars, everyone's got a couple of holidays. We're even starting to go on ski holidays, which was seen as pretentious when I was a kid. So there's lots of travel, there's lots of, um, you know, material possessions. But we're, we're kind of becoming victims of our own success a little bit too. I mean, I love Dublin, but I can't afford to buy a property there. So, you know, therefore, there's something not perfectly right. If the economy is so good that we're benefiting from it, but we can't afford to buy a property in our own city. Now, this affluence is because of um, smart government, isn't it? I mean, tax advantages for businesses. Uh, to what do you attribute Ireland's great affluence recently? I think it's a combination of many factors. I think that, yeah, low taxation corporate tax especially, the unions and the government are working together mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the industry. Uh, I think also it's just a very well-educated people. You know, we have this... Because uh, you had to be educated. Back when there was no jobs available, people would just spend a lot of time getting educated, I guess. Yeah, especially in the 80s, our government slashed public spending, but didn't necessarily slash it with regards to education. So we're very well-educated people. So you're a well-educated workforce, and now you've you've joined the European Union long ago. Uh, for a time, you were identified as one of the economic weak links of this 400 million person free trade zone called Europe, and you were getting money from Brussels, is that right? Yeah, for, there's no doubt. For maybe 20 to 30 years, we were the economic basket case. We were going with our hands out, getting money off France and Germany and the other big European partners. But we invested it very wisely. We've got great roads now, good airports, um, good infrastructure, because when I started traveling in Ireland, there were no freeways. And now you see freeways are, are pretty routine. And with every freeway, I see a sign with a, a European flag on it saying brought to you by the European Union, which means the, the French and the Germans, basically, yeah. isn't it? There's no doubt that we've benefited from being in the European Union, but we are now net contributors, not net receivers. So we're, for the first time, now giving to the European Union rather than receiving. So now ah. it's somebody else's turn to, to receive. Now, that's interesting, and a lot of Americans don't quite understand this, but what, there's like 25 nations or so, something like that, in the European Union, and the poor ones are net receivers, and the rich ones are net givers. Yeah, the idea is, uh, is it's called the cohesion fund. It's to bring all European countries into cohesion with each other, which is a great concept, I think. I mean, I have lots of young Polish friends and Czech friends now in Dublin, and it gets sad, to be honest, hearing what they would earn back home. They're earning, in the, for one week, you've got kids with master's degrees in English literature, and they're working in a pub in Dublin earning more in a week there than they would in a month in Poland. And when we're in conversation, I'm saying to them, don't worry about it, because 20 years ago, that's where I was. You know, that's where our people were. That's where the Irish were. 20 years ago, I was walking around Ireland, and there was no jobs for kids. They were so bored, they were ripping up all their bowling alleys in their theatres, so there was even less to do. It was scary to go out at night. Yeah, it's it remarkable a, it to change. It was bleak. It was gloomy. And now, for the first time in history, the Irish, you were so famous for exporting labour, and now you're importing labour. You mentioned your Polish friends. I mean, every rich country has guest arbiters, people who they hire to bring in to do the dirty work because they'll work for less money and they work real hard. The Irish are talking about their Polish workers like a new appliance. 
Yeah, it's remarkable. You know, I've got a great new poll. Yeah, they, and, they, and, and you know, whatever I say, they'll they'll do. You know, totally. I think you're spot on with that because you can just picture some guy in London in the 1970s talking about having a brand new paddy, working hard for him in the house. So it's the same, same cycle, and it's turned around now. Now we're on the edge of it, and some of us find that I, I don't know if it's uncomfortable, but it's bizarre. You know, What's it's that surreal like for you. Um, well, you run a youth house, do you employ some immigrants, don't you? Yeah, I have Polish people working for me, and and. Uh, there are times I get a little uncomfortable because I'm an Irishman and, you know, I've come from a background where growing up, we literally had not very much. We didn't have nothing. We were very happy. We had a great childhood. But we didn't have very much in terms of holidays or big cars or anything like that. You know, I'd, I had talked to my Polish friend Wojtek and I'd ask him to maybe do something around the hostel and his response to me is always, I will do that. I will do that. And I always say, oh, no, Wojtek, you don't have to say it like that, please. You know, <laughs> just do it. Don't don't say it like that. It makes me uncomfortable as an Irishman. I will do that, Stephen. Yeah. Right away. <laughs> now, Ireland has this new economy and people are moving faster. What kind of changes do you see in, in what it is to be Irish? I mean, my hunch is people are drinking less heavy stout beer just because it's not as trendy now. People are probably drinking more coffee and working harder and longer. Yeah, Dublin has its first Starbucks now, rightly or wrongly. So we're getting there. Uh, Dublin are starting to drink a lot more wine. People are starting to drink at home a lot more. Yeah, that's because a, in, when the times were tough, all you would do is hang out and drink heavy beer, pint after pint, with yeah. your with your uh, in, in the pub. And the pub's still our main social venue. We all love it, but the pub can be expensive. It's okay if you go there on a holiday and you're there for two weeks. You got to go to the pub every night. But if you're there 365 days a year, it's it pretty expensive. <laughs> that adds so people, up. people are sitting at home now sipping Chablis and Chardonnay. Is that right? Fuel bottles. What's a pint of uh, beer cost? Uh, in Dublin, it can go up to I think four fifty, four euros and fifty cents in a pub. Yeah, that's quite a lot. So that's you're, seven or eight dollars for a, yeah. a pint of beer. You know, not not to be detrimental, but I mean, it still doesn't compensate the atmosphere. And a pub will be much better than the atmosphere maybe at home. Yeah, for me, the pub is like the extended living room. It's everybody gets together to be social. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's the main focal point for everyone to get together, have a bit of conversation, have the crack, and sort of get have the crack, have the crack, which means good fun and Gaelic. So don't be. Getting excited. <laughs> Don't get uptight about the crack. There's, there's good crack and a, a good pub comes with good crack. Yeah, and, and recently there, the BBC did a survey which found that uh, Ireland, or Dublin, was regarded as the friendliest city in Europe, officially in this BBC survey. But most importantly, that our Ireland and the Irish are the most content nation or the most content people in Europe. You know, to be content is, is, is more important to us and, than, and to to be me, than to be rich or wealthy. You know, rich huh. and wealthy doesn't necessarily mean content. Now, that is a very interesting concept. So you're realizing that well-being is not always preceded by material, material well-being. Yeah, and that's not speaking for everyone. I mean, there's lots right. of young Irish who see there's themselves as the next yeah. Donald Trump or whatever. But, you know, for most of us, it's it's about, you know, working to live rather than living to work. I really think that's still part of us. Well, that's one of the charming things about an American visiting Ireland is we realize people, like this gift of gab, you hear about the gift of gab. Well, that's rooted in just a love of life and people being social and talking. I can talk forever with Irish people. It's a contagious thing, and the Irish have sort of an art form of conversation. Yeah, and that for me is why going to Dublin, uh, particularly for an American visitor, is such a big selling point. We don't necessarily have the big cathedrals that Barcelona might have with the grand boulevards or the chateaus or, you know, things like that. But we have another massive important thing, and that is friendliness and a genuine curiosity and welcome for visitors, which you, you don't always find it's, throughout the rest of genuine, Europe. It's genuine, you know. In America, you've got uh, bank tellers are fined if they don't uh, wish the customers to have a happy day. And you pick up a shopping bag at a grocery store, and it might say smile and be a winner, but it's sort of a superficial friendliness yeah, sometimes. I understand, yeah. In Ireland, you feel it's genuine. 
Oh yeah, and if it's not genuine, people won't talk to you. But if you know it is genuine, and and I really feel that, and I think that any visitor I've ever met, and I bring thousands of your people around Dublin every year, they're the first thing they always say when it comes to Dublin is the word magical or or great or wonderful. There's never a negative word or never a even understated word. And it's, it's magical always, not because of the grand boulevards and the towering architecture. It's magical yeah. because of the charming people that take time to get to know you. I'm speaking with Stephen McPhillamy, my uh, friend and fellow tour guide from Ireland, and we're talking about the charms and the magic of Dublin. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow, or when the valley's hushed and white with Let's hear your plans for visiting Dublin and, if you've already been there, the impressions the city's left on you. We're at 877-333-RICK and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling through Dublin with Stephen McPhillamy. Stephen, Ireland has such a recent stirring national struggle and history. When you think about just 100 years ago, Ireland was a colony of Britain, and today at least the Republic of Ireland has been free and independent since, what, the 1920s? Yeah, 1922. We became a republic then in the late 40s, 49. 1922. And I am just amazed when I go to Ireland, we've got all of our wonderful history from 200 years ago. Yours is from 80 years ago, 90 yeah, years ago. Yeah, it's a remarkable point. You know, our, our republic is so young and we're still very much in the exciting mode of nation building, state building. You know, we're, we're, we've got a long way to go. We know that Irish aren't perfect, but we've, we've done remarkably well. Oh, yeah. We've got a, a, a relatively low crime rate. We've got a democracy. Um, and a booming if, economy. Booming economy. Um, if immigrants seem happy to come to Ireland. Now, if somebody's going to appreciate the uh, national struggle and the heroics of your independence movement and revolution, really, how do you best experience that as a tourist? There can be no argument that Dublin is the historical best place to experience the story of Irish nationalism. Ironically, Dublin wasn't even founded by the Irish. It's a Viking city from the, the 10th century. So it was founded by foreigners. Dublin was always then, throughout history, known as the Pale, P-A-L-E, it was the English settlement in Ireland. Everything beyond the Pale was wild and barbaric and Irish and Catholic and savage and monstrous, uh, like like us, the Irish. And 
ironically now Dublin is the epicentre of everything Irish and, and Irish nationalism. So I think that's a great irony in our history. Dublin and the area around Dublin was like the green zone for the British colonialists. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was the, the yeah. comfortable place. As a yeah. matter of fact, when there was not any organized, uh, effective movement against this, I think Dublin was very cozy with London. It was a, a partner in the empire. Yeah, and then things began to change because in, in 1916 we had a, a another glorious failure of a rebellion, but this time things were different. Uh, in 1916 we fought the British Empire on the streets of Dublin. The rebellion only lasted five days, but the leaders knew that's all it would last. They knew they weren't going to be successful, but they wanted to become martyrs. And in Ireland we love our martyrs. The leaders were taken down to Kilmainham jail, put against the wall, court-martial uh, court first, put against the wall and shot. And they became our heroes. If you go to Dublin today, the train stations, the seaports, airports, uh, roads, stadium, everything's named after these heroes. We have Madison, Jefferson, Washington for our names of our schools and streets and cities. And you've got... And we'll have uh, Pierce and Houston and McDonough and James Connolly and all these different wonderful uh, patriots who give their lives for Irish freedom. And it's something that, you see, unfortunately then for the last 30 years, because there was conflict in the North, nationalism became a... Uh, and patriotism became a dirty word in Ireland. To fly the Irish flag or to be proud of your patriot heroes meant that you were a supporter of the IRA and terrorism in the North. And, and that was a very sad thing because a lot of us didn't want to show, you know, we were we were ridiculed or mm-hmm. um, put down for being patriotic. And, and as, a, as a young 31-year-old Irishman, I love being patriotic. And I, I love the fact that now the conflict in the North is over. You can stand up and be... I was always stood up and was proud of my Irishness anyway, but uh, now it's acceptable for everyone else to do so. And and now the Irish soccer team traditionally have done well for the last 20 years, and they brought the Irish flag around Europe and give Europeans the image of the Irish flag in a positive sense, not just bombs in London or bombs in Belfast. You know, So that's that's a vital part of Ireland's resurgence as well, is the fact that the conflict in the North is over. And now lots of people, are, are young people especially, are coming into Dublin going to Kilmainham Jail to see where the leaders were executed, going to the General Post Office to see where the rebellion started. And every year the Irish government now has a military procession down the main street in Dublin. Uh, our army goes down. We've got a few little small tanks and stuff. You have an army? Well, it's very small, but we have a few little tanks and a few little pieces of artillery. And, and <laughs> well, we don't have an air force as such. We have no fighter planes, but our little helicopters fly over. And we, and we get excited, you know. And, and this is the government now taking back patriotism. So this and is giving it back So to young people. people from the countryside are going into Dublin to remember these national heroics. Yes, to have a look around. And, and even there's a guy who's a friend of mine in Dublin now who, who makes his living from doing 1916 rebellion walking tours. And that's, to me, it's brilliant. That, that's great. That people are coming in and learning that stuff. And it? for me, I come out of, well, Americans love their revolutionary heritage, but it's, as I said, it's a long time ago. And for me to go to Ireland and to realize that a lot of these people are within living memory of the people you meet on the streets, uh, these heroes, these Nathan Hales and Ethan Allens and Patrick Henrys of the Irish struggle for independence. You mentioned the Kilmainham Jail. That's uh, incredible jail, which is so, uh, I think, important for this struggle because that's where these charismatic and inspirational leaders were heroically oh, yeah. uh, standing their last stand and then executed in firing squad, right? Yeah, and for a, for a lover of freedom of any kind, Kilmainham Jail is a must-see on the trip to Dublin. And there's a wonderful museum that has the letters these guys wrote to their mothers the night before they were executed, yeah. which is just a beautiful last testament for love of their country. Yeah, definitely. And you can take a nice stroll up to the top of O'Connell Street and visit the Garden of Remembrance in Parnell Square. It's not 
overly used by the population. Yeah. But other people will go in there and spend a few minutes and see the old Celtic crosses. And, it's beautifully and, done. And you go to the Dublin Castle and you feel the power of Britain there and, and, the, yeah. and, the, and the courageous underdog struggle of the Irish people. Because yeah. the, the Dublin Castle was really the, wasn't it the um, headquarters of the British? Yeah, that was the... Um, centre of British rule in Ireland for over 800 years. And towards the end of, of British rule in Southern Ireland, Dublin Castle became Britain's green zone because they only controlled that little centre of Dublin. They were almost frightened to come out. So there was mass wow. popular appeal of the rebellion. What I like about our rebellion is that, you know, like many other former British colonies, Ireland could have degenerated into a crime-ridden, corruption-infested society but we didn't do that it didn't become that way we've had our problems with a bit of political corruption but generally it's um, a law-abiding democratic peaceful and progressive society and it's a beautiful triumph that ireland has its freedom today i'm talking with stephen mcphillamy this is rick steves it's travel with rick steves and we're uh, exploring dublin today julie's on the line in dallas texas hi julie thanks for your call hi um i have a question now that we have a toddler, we're really hesitant to go to a place that isn't quote-unquote family-friendly, you know, changing tables, open public spaces, parks, with, you know, places without traffic. Is Dublin family-friendly? Because, you know, I've been and I can't remember if it was. Is it friendly? Do you recommend any certain area of town? For little children, how old is your child? Two. Two. All right, uh, Stephen. Don't you, you have a little child? Yeah, I have two daughters, and I always brought them to Dublin. I mean, now they're uh, seven and 11, but I always brought them to Dublin. And uh, I found it quite comfortable, the city centre. I mean, you know, if we wanted to get down to the zoo, we could head down in the new trams that we have in Dublin called the Lewis. Uh, I like to take them up to St. Stephen's Green, which is, like I say, you were saying, uh, staying Julie in a city centre hotel. You could take a walk from any city centre hotel up Grafton Street, which is a lovely pedestrianised street with music and no traffic. And at the end of that, you've got St. Stephen's Green, totally fenced off from the traffic, and they can sit in there and feed the ducks, hopefully in the sunshine. And the rest of Ireland is very family-friendly. You get into the small towns in the countryside of Ireland, and it's a charming opportunity. Yeah, and I found the restaurants usually very uh, helpful, Julie, that they would often you know, bring a baby chair or a high chair, as we would call it. Uh, yes, I was going to ask, do they have high chairs yeah, they and always, menus? And... I always found there was never a problem finding that. I mean, at the start as well, I needed to have bottles of milk heated, and they'd always take them away from me and get them... In a restaurant, they just take you, bring your bottle of milk, and they'd microwave yeah, it. Or yeah, they'd, they'd have whatever way Can you want. Can you take little kids in, into a pub? Is there a family zone in the pub? Not really. Like, the, you know, during the day you can. It's illegal after nine o'clock. After nine o'clock, it's yeah. illegal. But before nine. Before nine, it's fine. And there's no smoking in the And there's no anymore. smoking, so there's no real health issue. But after nine o'clock, it is against the law. Some pub owners let it go. But a lot of Irish people are starting to think, well, maybe it's not the ideal place for no. a kid after nine. <laughs> you know? But I find that in some pubs in the countryside, it's the place to go for, it's like a lounge where families go and, and uh, it's just a multi-generational scene. Oh yeah, where before where nine o'clock, food. it's fine. And, and quite often they'll have music before nine too, so the kids can sit and And then the atmosphere changes later when it becomes more heavy drinking and, yeah, and, and adults. Yeah, it changes in a positive way, but it's just more full and a lot right. more people around and maybe yeah. a bit more boisterous than that. All right, Julie, I hope that gives you Thank some you. ideas. Yes. Good luck with your family. Thanks. Napella in Waimea, Hawaii. Did I get your name right? Napella? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your call. Aloha, Rick and Stephen. I was wondering, when visiting Dublin, how high up on a must-do list would the Mary Plowboy rank, as well as Dublinia and the medieval Viking world, as well as St. Stephen's Green Park? And how much time should be allocated for each? Whoa, what are those sites again? I, I caught Dublinia. Dublinia. Um, the other is, uh, I've heard of a pub, the Mary Plowboy Pub. Yeah, yeah. 
And then the last is St. Stephen's Green Park. And also, are there any open markets that you would recommend visiting? All right. Okay. First of all, the Mary Ploughboy, do you know, I, I don't necessarily know it as any different to any other great pub in Dublin. I mean, it wouldn't have struck me as a must-see, whereas there's, I think, over 2,000 pubs in Dublin. and there's at Is least there a single pub that's a must-see in your mind? Um, there's, uh, well, you know, there's one in Temple Bar called the Temple Bar, which is a must-see, maybe even just from the outside, because it's mm-hmm. a nice photograph and it's a famous bar. Inside is, is excellent, too. For me, the, must often very the must-see pub is, I love the uh, musical pub crawl and the literary pub crawl. And they meet every night for tourists, and there's a couple of actors or musicians that will get 20 people together, and they will, for a very reasonable price, go to four pubs over the course of two or three hours and oh. demonstrate the literary heritage of Ireland in one of one of the tours. And then the music pub crawl, of course, uh, demonstrates all the musical instruments, and that's a fun way to enjoy the pub scene with a little bit of education and a little bit of beer and a little bit of socialising all mixed yeah. together. And, and close to that area, too, you have the Brazen Head, which is regarded as Dublin's oldest. It's a 12th century pub. I took my family to the Brazen Head just to get some live music, and it was wonderful. And there's one right across the street that's also very good. Yeah, the uh, O'Shea's, where the uh, merchant bar, where there's a, a nice bit of set dancing, which I think Americans would be familiar with. What they call it square dancing, which you could join in there. But if you didn't find the Merry Ploughboy, don't get too stressed because there's there's at least 500 Merry Ploughboys around that you'd have an equally great time in. And then uh, what about Dublinia? Dublinia is good because it talks about Dublin's Viking heritage. Uh, we're getting maybe even more and more excited about that because a new a Viking ship was built in Copenhagen and sailed across the sea to Dublin. So it shows that the, the journey often did happen in the past. But Dublinia is, is uh, very specific with regards to the Viking heritage. And I don't know if it would be ideal for adults. I think it's more for it's a, more a, a for younger kids. student, kids or a student crowd. It's yeah. like a Viking history ride. Don't you get on a fake boat and you get sprayed by the sea and it's all this Viking, you can almost smell their armpits, you know. Yeah, I decided to forego <laughs> that experience, but I, I've heard yeah, that's... that's I've, I've been in Dublinia and I, I think the problem with a site like that, it's very commercial and there's no artifacts that I can remember. It's, it's an experience, it's fun, it's got wax models and everything, but if you want Viking heritage, be sure to go to the National Museum, right, which has all of the Viking uh, artifacts. Yeah. Is that called the... It's just the National Museum. It's an yeah, incredible Street. museum on Kildare Street. Yeah. And when she comes out of the National Museum, turn left and head uh, 200 metres up into beautiful St. Stephen's Green. I think it's a wonderful place to uh, hang out, to watch the Irish, to people watch, because people watching in Ireland these days is people watching for the whole of Europe because we're all there. And it's a nice place to maybe have an ice cream and just sit and feed the ducks and watch the world go by. There you go, Napella. Don't worry about that particular pub. There's 500 <laughs> just like it. Dublinia is good for teenagers, but the real quality Viking experience is at the National Museum. And uh, a couple blocks away, you've got St. Stephen's Green, which is sort of the, the central park, I think, of Ireland. Yeah. Like New York would be a uh, central park. Yeah. And then uh, open-air markets. I'm trying to think of a good open-air market. Oh, yeah, they've got a great market over there on the yeah, other side well, of the river. If you go over onto the north side of town, there's Moor Street. And uh, the ladies there are traditional fruit sellers and it's a real flower time sellers. It? Yeah, and it's gorgeous with colour and you'll hear the old hardcore Dublin accent coming out. And it's a trip back to the 1960s. Yeah, wonderful. Great characters What's as well. What's the street again? Uh, over by Moor Street, anywhere near Moor Street and Henry Street. Moor, uh, maybe it? it's my accent, but M-O-O-R-E. Just yeah, that's, behind that's the general post office. In America, we'd say Moor Street. Moor Street, well, there you go. <laughs> All right, Sorry. Napella, I hope that helps you out. Thank you so much. Aloha, mahalo. Aloha. Aloha. Joanne's on the phone from Doylston, Pennsylvania. Hi, Joanne. Hi, Rick. We have about two full days in Dublin, and I can add to it a little bit, but if, if I only had two full days, what should I not miss? 
Stephen. Right. Uh, two full days in Dublin. I'd spend one day seeing the city. I'd see a National Museum, which doesn't open on a Monday, unfortunately, so hopefully that's not one of your full days. Uh, mm-hmm. National Museum in the city centre uh, during the day. I'd take a walk along Grafton Street, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the most beautiful uh, pedestrianised streets full of music in the whole of Europe. And in the evening then, I'd go into Temple Bar and I'd just get lost in a sea of... Wonderful, crazy, crazy crack. Wonderful scene, yeah. Which that sounds fun. like fun. There's great music as well, and I'd try to uh, find a pub with a bit of dancing, maybe a bit of set dancing. And uh, if you're into theatre, you could always pick out the Abbey Theatre. Uh, we have the oldest national theatre company in the world in the centre of town. It was founded in 1904 by, by William Butler Yeats. I'm not sure if you're into literature too much, but Dublin's got a great literary scene because it's the only city in the world that has three Nobel Prize winners for literature. William I Butler was an Yates. English major, so oh, yeah, sure. that was, that's something I would love. It might be your destiny then, so yeah. because <laughs> th- there's the Irish Writers Museum up in Parnell Square, which is close to that if you wanted to find out some more about George Bernard Shaw or Samuel Beckett or Yeats or Joyce or uh, Oscar Wilde or any of these great characters. And then, say if you had a, another day then, the most visited attraction in Dublin, rightly or wrongly, is the Guinness Brewery, which is now known, as the, Gu- now known yeah. as the Guinness Storehouse. And I'm in sort of two minds about it as a must-see. It's definitely something you must see, but I don't know if it's something that should be on a sort of conventional must-see list. Guinness spent millions on it, and it's very avant-garde and modern and funky. And and when I bring people there, I'm quite proud of it, to be honest. But you you don't get to see any Guinness being made. It's a bit like the Willy Wonka factory. It's top secret. (laughs) Mm. And, and I think that's because uh, the corporation that owns Guinness also own Burger King and they make Budweiser there. So if you went in and you saw Budweiser being made in the Guinness Brewery, you'd probably be looking for a refund. So, <laughs> But there's a great view on top. There's this thing called the Gravity Bar and on top of the brewery. And, and your admission comes with a pint. The admission comes with a nice pint. And the and Gravity Bar, which is the best view of town, I, th- I find. Definitely, yeah. And the, there's a good souvenir store. And I mean, we appreciate people want to do some shopping and that kind of thing too. But if you had a day then, you know, you might even consider getting out of Dublin for the day. Because for me as an Irishman, there's two great achievements we've had in our history. One is we beat the British Empire, which is the biggest empire the world has ever had. So if you wanted to see Kilmainham Jail and the General Post Office on your day in Dublin. And the second big achievement if we never have an achievement again, we can rest on our laurels and be proud of the fact that our ancestors built a place called Newgrange, mm. which is about 45 minutes to an hour from Dublin. And there's one place I say to everybody who comes to Ireland, whether you do it with me or, or with Rick or anybody else, you must see Newgrange. It's, it's older than the pyramids. It's our ancient burial chamber. And it is absolutely spectacular. Rick has been there. In his I film. love it. It's still, you need to get an appointment, don't you? So there's, they're, uh, they're monitoring the crowds? Or they, they do monitor the crowds, but if you take a day tour from Dublin ah, uh, city centre, it's included. Yeah. So Newgrange is your pyramid experience, your prehistoric, your Stonehenge wonder world of Ireland. And it really is. It comes with these tours and there's two sites. That you can have a choice of one or the other, or can you take both? You have a choice of three sites now, North, Douth, or Newgrange. They're all burial chambers, but the site is called Brew Nabonia. So there's three burial chambers, but the most visually impressive one is Newgrange. Newgrange, that's To right. see that is amazing. And the museum that is associated with all of them is excellent. Yeah, and it, the Newgrange is, is famous, uh, just to elaborate, because it fills with sunshine, only one, fills with light one day a year, the winter solstice, December mm. 21st. Wow. 
Joanne, that gives you some ideas, I hope. A lot of ideas. You Thank know, you so much. One thing about evening entertainment, first of all, remember the Irish have the gift of gab, and that translates into wonderful guided tours. I've enjoyed my guided tours in Dublin more, I think, than any city in Europe, just because it's a joy to listen to these people. Every place seems to have a passion for letting people lead tours around, whether it's Kilmainham Jail or Trinity College. Trinity College is famous for the Book of Kells, and it's a wonderful college, and it, you get a chance to talk to the equivalent of an Ivy League big shot, you know, a very sophisticated uh, young Irish student who's in the best school in the country, I guess, and they give walks every day. And it's just a beautiful insight into the Trinity College. Also, our family went to the very commercial river dance, and we just thoroughly enjoyed it in Dublin. Do you know if that's still playing there? Um, it sometimes uh, plays, sometimes it travels around the world and doesn't be in Dublin, but regardless of whether river dance is there or not, there are other river dance style shows. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a bar in the centre of Dublin called the Arlington Hotel. It has a river dance performance every night of the week. 365 days a year, we went to. free of charge. I just really enjoyed yeah. it. And the kids who danced there danced with river dance. Thank you, Joanne, for your call, and I hope that helps you. Thank you so much, Rick. Enjoy See your you next later. trip. Thank you. Bye-bye. Eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five and radio at ricksteves.com. We're glad you've joined us today on An Insider's Guide to Dublin on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling to Dublin, and we're joined by Stephen McPhillamy, who comes to us straight from Ireland. Stephen, great to have you here, as always. You guys know how to talk. Well, we have a reputation for talking. You see, English has only been our language for 150 years, which is, you know, uh, very interesting. Before that, we always had our, our own beautiful native tongue, Gaelic, and now we're speaking English, and there's often said that the English may have given us their language, forced it upon us, but we then turned it around and showed them how to use it. I think there's something to that, because when I go to a Gaeltic especially, this is one of those places in the West where the people speak Gaelic first, and they speak to me in English, I feel like it's got a different sort of structure. It's almost translated directly yeah, from a more romantic and poetic language, which might be the Irish. Yeah, and, and Gaelic is a wonderfully lyrical language when it's spoken properly. And sometimes English can be very short and abbreviated. And uh, I think like we have the natural sounds. Maybe even our palate has been designed to come out with these sounds. So we're, we're throwing in all sorts of words into these English sentences just to make it extravagant and long and sound right in our mind. And as an Irishman, do you appreciate when somebody's good at the language? As, as good at the Gaelic language? No, good at English. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we have to accept that English is our language now and, and yeah. it's not ever going to change. Like, we're never going to, unfortunately, have our first mother tongue back. Uh, I mean, only 14% of us speak Gaelic fluently. But, you know, it's, it's safe and uh, I'm comfortable as, a, as an English speaker, even though it is the language of my former colonial masters. But I'm comfortable with it and it's done me well. I mean, I wouldn't be here today if I was speaking Gaelic, for example. I, I think that's a, a fair statement. <laughs> you know, uh, another thing the Irish excel in for a little island with four or five million people is music. Yeah. What's the deal there? Why, why are you so good at music? You got, I mean, think about it. We've got uh, U2, Van Morrison, Sinead O'Connor, Enya, the Cranberries, uh, not to mention all the traditional music. Yeah, I think it comes from the fact that we're a, a Celtic, Gaelic, expressive, flamboyant culture. I also think that as a culture that was oppressed for so long, music was often the only outlet open to us for expressions of our anger or our sadness or our political beliefs or our sense for freedom and justice. So You know, hold that thought. I was just down in El Salvador and exactly the same thing happened. El Salvador, from my estimate, is a crushed people and they can't even paint their political uh, religious murals that they like to do, but they can have their spirit free in their music. In 1972, the British embassy was burned to the ground in Dublin and our government thought, oh, the nationalism's getting very strong here. 
we'll have to we'll have to crush it a bit. So they banned all our, our patriotic ballads and historical ballads, our rebel songs from the national radio and television In station. In seventy two. Seventy two. You know, these are called rebel songs. Some they're not everyone's cup of tea, but everyone in Ireland knows them now because they've been banned, you know. It's the greatest way of sticking two fingers up to the government is to sing a rebel song in a pub. And and you see people sing a song in a bar, that's one thing. People sing a rebel song in a bar. Some people mightn't like it, but most people are on the tables clapping and stomping and yeehan and you know, it just gives a great surge. They're not all tacky, um, aggressive, violent political songs. Some of them have a beautiful historical narrative, these wonderful rebel songs. I mean, every Irishman knows at least 400. Oh, they tell heart-wrenching political love stories almost. I mean, it's a powerful thing. Yeah, and I know Bono would say this is where rock and roll fits in perfect with the Irish psyche, is that whole way of being rebellious but still being creative and expressive and you know you look at a country like Ireland if you look at a comparative country of our size say Denmark or New Zealand there's nowhere near the same number of international uh, rock stars or right. even pop stars or poets or musicians whatever way you, you want to express yourself in terms of artistic endeavour but especially music I mean you've got uh, the Cars and the Cranberries and Sinead O'Connor and Van Morrison and the Chieftains and uh, Enya and U2. And I mean, what's with U2? I mean, they must, Bono must be the most famous and influential Irishman on the planet. Yeah, without doubt, he's the most famous. Do and people influential uh, look Irishman. up to him? Is he a hero in Ireland? Well, he's, he's liked in Ireland. Um, I, I'd be very proud of him as an Irishman. Irish can be a wee bit cynical too about our heroes, you know, or not so much our heroes, but our leaders. We don't like anyone getting too big for their boots and we can be a bit cynical and sometimes we don't even know why we're being a bit cynical towards these guys because he's pretty big he's big news yeah. and, and a lot of people say to Bono uh, you see for years in Ireland rock stars have not paid tax they haven't been asked to pay tax because we think it's good for society to have rock stars and anybody who earns their living from artistic expression has not been taxed so when Bono starts talking about you know poverty and eradicating poverty and, and helping schools and hospitals and whatnot, a lot of the Irish cynics would say, well, Bono, why the hell don't you pay your taxes? And and recently we've changed the law and now you too have moved their corporate enterprise to Holland where they pay less tax. So there's a certain cynicism there. But overall, we are proud of Bono. I'm personally very proud of him. Uh, he does a lot for Ireland. And he, you know he, he's putting out a good message regardless of whether we're cynical about him. He's talking about eradicating poverty helping people with AIDS. And as Irish people, we're very proud of that. And I think it's no coincidence that of the two main figures who tried to help poverty in Africa and help eradicate famine in Africa, both were Irish, Bob Geldof from Dublin and Bono from Dublin as well. And And you think think that's no coincidence? Why? Because of Ireland's uh, potato famine and being trodden down by colonialism heritage? Absolutely. I mean, we're the only white country that's ever starved to death, as far as I can see from my reading through history under the same types of colonial rule who've maybe caused the problems in because Africa. Because many Irish think there really wasn't a famine because they just kept growing food for export during well, that potato. Exactly. Plague. I mean, I don't think any historian could say there was a famine in Ireland because there was no famine in Ireland. When the country's full of food, you can't have a famine. So it was a distribution issue. It was just a lack of food. And in Gaelic, the famine is never called the famine. It's called Angorta Moor, which means the big hunger. Everyone during the famine didn't go around saying to each other, God, this is a terrible famine we're having. They said, isn't this a great hunger we're having? Because the British owned the land and the British were growing food that was more profitable to sell in England than to feed to poor Irish. Is that the idea? Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, complex reasons for the for the famine. Um, main reason was people had to pay high rents for their land and 
they had to sell their crops and their sheep and the money was then given to the English landlords to stay on the land and people were left eating potatoes then, which was fine, but then the potato crop died between 1845 and 49. And that was the death. death That's what killed us off. But uh, very proud of the fact that Bob Geldof, who started Live Aid and Bono now, who's there to, uh, you know, head the campaign. That's a good connection. That does make sense. So Ireland empathises with the struggles of people who are desperate. Definitely. And Bono still lives in Dublin. All of you two still live in Dublin. They could live in a tax haven in the Bahamas or Mm -hmm. in Monaco or somewhere, but they live in Dublin. In 2001, probably the most groundbreaking moment of my life came just outside Dublin. There's a place called Slane Castle. Mm-hmm. If you were going to Newgrange, you'd see that. That's the spiritual home of you two. And Bono was there. His father had just died mm-hmm. two days before. It was a very um, emotive night. And uh, Bono got the microphone and he shined the torches in thousands of people, 80,000 people. And he said, he said, I want to thank you all for coming here and supporting us. And everyone's, yeah. And he said, he said, I want to thank you all because in 1976 or something, we went to London and we got a record deal. And the crowd just went, yeah. And he said, and instead of going to New York like every other bleeding band, we came back to Dublin and that place just exploded. And Bono shined the torches in everyone's faces and said, because you are our tribe. Whoa. And that place just went mad. And I just thought, for all the faults in my life, I am a member of the same tribe as Bono. There is a God. (laughs) That was a very spiritual moment for me. For all my faults, I'm a member of his tribe. I'm covered with goosebumps. That is such an inspirational story. Ramona's on the phone from San Antonio, Texas. Hi, Ramona. Thanks for your call. Hi. How are y'all? Doing good, thanks. Good. I was wondering, uh, I know because of my husband's work that the technology field is really booming in in Ireland, especially Dublin. And I was wondering, is, is it almost growing a little too fast there? I don't think the technology industry can ever grow too fast. I mean, I, mean for, I know lots of friends of mine who are working in Intel and IBM and Microsoft, and I've got a friend now who works for Google, and he even has a massage chair on his on his office, so he's happy. <laughs> but uh, it's bringing in lots of jobs for us, and it's bringing in a lot of income for our society. These big computer firms, these big computer factories, are all based on the outskirts of town, so you don't see them in the centre of Dublin. So they're not really blighting the countryside or anything. And Are they uh, choosing to locate there because of favorable business regulations from the government? Yeah, they're there for two reasons. One is we have a highly educated, highly motivated workforce. And two, we have a very low corporate tax. I think Microsoft pay 13% corporation tax in Ireland. If they were in Germany, it would be 30. France, probably higher. So, you know, maybe that's got more to do with tax than the workforce. But we're getting lots of new people coming in, and I think that can only be good for Ireland. I mean, if we're confident in ourselves as Irish people, then why should we be worried about Polish coming in or American people coming in to work? And I've made lots of great friends, and I work in tourism, so, you know, we're getting them coming on tours then. And, you know, it's a wonderful triple-down... The metabolism of the Irish economy is way up. I, I remember when it was so bleak, everybody was on the dole, everybody was complaining, there was just nothing going on. And now you go to Ireland and, and there's a, a spring in people's steps. Yeah, and, so, and sometimes, you know, a few of our maybe far-left politicians will stand up and say, oh, these big multinationals coming in here, it's horrendous. And then a lot of people, like normal people, will say, well... That may be so, but what was the alternative? You know, we all went off to London on the banana boats back in the, in, you know, in the 80s to get stuck in dead-end jobs building big factories or big skyscrapers. And so now we're happier, I think. And uh, I think it's been a good thing for us. We're the second biggest producer of software in the world after the United States, Boy, that's which is remarkable because 30 years ago, no one even knew how to use a computer. Ramona, thanks for your call. Thank you very much.
Carol in Los Alamitos, California. Hi, Carol. Oh, hi, Rick. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be on your show today. Sure. We took a trip. We had four adults. We were only there for two days, and we would like to go back because, um, you know, we spent the rest of the uh, vacation around Ireland, but uh, Dublin was especially exciting. We really liked the people and the friendliness and everything. Um, do you recommend a small B&B that you can stay in in downtown Dublin that has access to all the little places to go? For example, Temple Bar. We were in Temple Bar, and uh, I don't know if I would want a uh, small B&B in that area. Yeah, you don't want to stay in Temple Bar because no. especially on a, well, any night it's like a Friday and a Saturday. And on exactly. a Friday and a Saturday it's like a carnival and it's just, <laughs> you go there to check it out but unless you really want to be dancing all night long, I, I would not sleep in Temple Bar. Stephen, Dublin is one of the most expensive cities in Europe. It rivals London for accommodations costs. What's your trick for budget accommodations? Um, there's not a Great amount of bed Dun, and breakfast. Dunleary. In the city I go to Dunleary for B and B. Exactly. If you moved out to Dunleary, which is only ten or fifteen minutes by train, there's a wonderful commuter train, right. and you, you don't feel like you're going to a different town because you're not. It's still part of Dublin. Right. Beautiful out there on the coast, and there would be a lot more nice old Victorian and Georgian townhouses. Uh, you could get them on the Irish Tourist Board's website. You know, you can book them online there. They have a, a whole list of B&Bs there and in different parts of town. But in the city centre, there's not a lot of bed and breakfast. There's a few nice budget hotels and that, but they're very expensive, you know. What do you have? The, you, there's a few um, sort of youth hostels that are kind of rough, uh, but they're they're very efficient. And then you've got this big, uh, what is it, County Inn, Christchurch, uh, Juries. Juries Inn. The yeah. Juries Inn, which is a, a sort of um, days in kind of place, which is yeah. uh, low end, but but still expensive and still comfortable. But by I- Irish standards, it's affordable. Yeah. Like the, a lot of the, the hostels, though, have changed recently. They've modernized and they have family rooms and rooms for mm-hmm. couples now more than your dorms. A lot of travelers don't want the dorms anymore. So you could get a nice hostel maybe in the city center. Quite often they're just called budget accommodation centers now rather than hostels because hostel has a bad... But you better do your research, Carol, because the the stakes are high and there are some good budget bets. But if you want the coziness you're looking for, you're not going to really find cozy without it being boutique and very expensive in Dublin. But if you want friendly, you know, affordable coziness... Dunleary. Dunleary. Dunleary is the, uh, where the boat goes to Wales, yeah, the right? The boat goes to Wales, and the train from the city centre, right in the city centre, straight out there in For minutes. years I stayed in Dunleary. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you. We have Scott on the line in Chicago. Hi, Scott. Thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. My question is kind of a little different, I guess. Um, the Irish Times reported on October 22nd that Dublin is listed as one of the dirtiest according to the latest survey from the uh, anti-litter group. Having just been there in October, I can attest to being a little uncapped. Uh, Don't get me wrong, we absolutely love Dublin and all it had to offer. They're content but dirty. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I did notice that it it couldn't really use a cleaning. Uh, That was even before I read the report. Uh, My question is, what, if anything, has been done since this report came out? Okay, well, first of all, Scott, I agree with you totally. I said that earlier in the interview, we're far from a perfect society. We have a long way to go in getting ourselves cleaned up. I don't think we'll ever reach Scandinavian standards of cleanliness because then we just wouldn't be the Irish anymore. (laughs) But but we're really starting to, you know, in schools, teach the young people about uh, recycling, teaching the young people that it's just not acceptable to throw chewing gum on the streets. Or, you know, if you've got a, a wrapping paper or a cigarette box just to throw it in the street, which I, I can't believe that some Irish people still do that. And I don't blame the foreigners coming in or the tourists coming in. It's the Irish. You know, there's an element of us who just simply think it's okay just to, to discard rubbish and discard litter. 
And for me, as a, as a nationalist and as a patriot, there's no point singing the songs and, and flying the flag and doing the thing on St. Patrick's Day if you're there and going to discard chewing gum on the street or throw a cigarette butt somewhere. It's just not acceptable. And that's just, the government are going to change. But the reason it's going to change, Scott, is we've just elected the Green Party into our government. They're a minority partner in the government, but they've got the big boys by the juggler now and they're saying this we've got to clean this society up we've got to go green we've got to stop littering and we've got to create a culture that might not be Scandinavian style perfection but will be at least cleaner I think part of this heritage is from the time when everybody was on the dole and the economy was just brutalized by a colonial system where there was a structural poverty and people were sort of brought up not to care because nobody cared about them. I think you're totally right. And I also think it's just not acceptable. You know, we we can complain forever about, oh, well, it's just litter and who the hell cares. But we have to change. Scott, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Linda's on the phone from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Linda. Thanks for your call. Hi. We were just there a few weeks ago and we're staying in Dublin and noticed that the pub stayed open very late and everybody stood outside and seemed to drink and I suppose they were smoking. So I just wondered how late the pubs were open. Well, there's no nationwide uh, specific time for closing. Uh, Generally, most bars midweek would be closed by around 11.30. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you'd have to be out by 12. The, the last drinks would be 11.30 and you have to be out by 12.30. But uh, depending on whether or not you have music or some sort of entertainment going on, you can go on to 2 o'clock in the morning. I would think there's nothing legally opened after 2.30 a.m. in the Republic of Ireland. There's a few bars in fishing villages and in the centre of Dublin which have got what are called fishermen's licences. They can stay open oh. And people are outside basically. smoking because you can't smoke inside. So you find that a lot of places even have blankets and outdoor heaters because you can smoke outside and still drink the beer, right? Yeah, we banned smoking in May of 2005, first country in the world to do so, so a nice progressive law. And it's worked excellently, and uh, Northern Ireland joined the ban in May of 2007. All right. So the whole island is now smoke-free in the It's pubs. a smoke-free, Emerald Island is no longer smoky. There you go, Linda, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you very much. You bet. Stephen, you take Americans to Dublin year in and year out, you're, that's your job, you're a tour guide. What's your challenge to help Americans understand the, the, the real soul of Dublin when they come? What, what is your agenda? Right. Well, when I get Americans with me in Dublin, I have a few objectives, if you like, that I need to tick the boxes for all of them. I need them to see our music, our traditional music and our you know, more contemporary rock music, jazz music scene. I need them to explore the history of our nationalist past and our nationalist present with regards to our rebellion. I'd like them to go to Kilmainham Jail with me and uh, to the GPO on O'Connell Street where the 1916 rebellion took place. I'd like them to see the literary side of Dublin, which I think is vital. And uh, I think it's very important that they see the nice mix that's going on between the new Irish. Our city is now 10% Polish, Czech, Nigerian and God knows what else and uh, how that's going to be for our future because we have to accept that in the future, you know, Ireland is going to be more and more diverse and cosmopolitan and we're not all going to be white, Catholic and drinking Guinness and that's an exciting future for us. I know the, the Gaelic language is alive and well. How do you uh, wish somebody well when you're, when you're done with a nice time together? Uh, I'd say, Go Nairi and Boharlat, which means may the road rise to meet you. And you too. Stephen McPhillamy, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure, Rick. Thank you very much, sir. Cheers, Rick.
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.